You're listening to a podcast from Hicksville Cornerstone Church. For more information about the church, visit us at hickscc.org. That's H-I-X-C-C.org. Thanks for listening. We've been going through What is the Church all summer. This is our last Sunday at What is the Church. We're going to get into Matthew next week. Um, I'm so excited to share with you this sermon because it is something that has been on my heart as we've looked at answering the question of what is the church throughout the remainder or throughout the rest of the summer. And it all kind of culminates in today's message, which what is the church? It's a culture of grace. And I want to open by sharing with you a story um, that is not the only time this has happened, but it is unfortunately probably the most pressing time that this has happened. Several years ago, I was meeting with a young man who was in high school. He was a junior. And I'd gotten to know this young man over the course of several months. He did not attend our church, but was a friend of one of the other high schoolers that had attended our youth group. And so we're meeting for lunch, and we're talking about life, and we finally get to the point where we're talking about Christianity and church. Well, he is quasi-churched, you know, he, he would call himself a priester at that point in his life, it was someone who comes on Christmas and Easter, he'd go to his uncle's church, um, and then, but there had been other seasons of his life where he'd definitely been more regular. And he was wrestling with some really, really hard personal sin. And it was in the midst of that conversation where he said something that absolutely gutted me. I had Asked him again, hey, brother, I would love for you to come to church with me this Sunday. And he said this. He said this. He said, AJ, I can't come to church yet. I have to get better before I come back. I have to get better before I come back. Which unfortunately is the position of many people who have had some relationship with the church but have now walked away. They believe they have to get right with Jesus before they attend church. And this is not the, this is not the only conversation. I've had similar ones over the course of my lifetime with people. Like this young man, many people deal with what they know to be sin, but they assume that church is for people that have it all together. They assume churches for people that have it all together. I met another young man who could not go back to church because he had sinned against another member of his church in town. And even though he had been told he had been forgiven, he still felt like he needed to do more before he could begin to interact with this church member again. I heard of another lady who could not stopped going to church for weeks Because something had been printed in the newspaper in town that had tarnished the reputation of her family. And because of it, she dreaded walking through the doors of her church on Sunday. Christian, if your sin is out in the open, if you're caught in open sin, is your heart's desire to run to the church, not a building, but a community of believers, Or is your heart's desire to run from it? Christian, if you are caught in open sin, is your heart's desire to run from the church? 
or to hide from it. The Bible talks a lot about grace, about love, about forgiveness. And if you've been around this whole summer series, you will have seen these themes echoed every week that we touched on what is the church. And in our last week discussing what is the church, I want to answer that question by giving you the answer that I think at our very core, we all long for and what the Bible calls us to. What is the church? A culture of grace. A culture of grace. Francis Schaeffer, who I will probably quote extensively throughout today's sermon, writes about two orthodoxies within the church. Schaeffer says this about the early church as he kind of puts these into perspective. This is what he says. One cannot explain the explosive dynamite, the dunamis of the early church, apart from the fact that it practiced two things simultaneously. Orthodoxy of doctrine and orthodoxy of community in the midst of the visible church. A community which the world would see. By the grace of God, therefore, the church must be known simultaneously for its purity of doctrine and the reality of its community. Our churches have so often only been preaching points with very little emphasis on community. But an exhibition of love of God in practice is beautiful and must be there. In other words, what I preach from the pulpit must bear witness to the truth of the gospel and how we live our lives in community must bear witness to the truth of the gospel. There is no either or. John 1.14 says it best. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, talking about Jesus. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of what? Grace and truth. Grace and truth. We're to walk in grace and truth. Why? Because that is what our older brother Jesus did. He walked in grace and truth. He wasn't truthful one day and then the next day he was gracious. He walked in grace and truth every moment of his life and empowered by the Holy Spirit. We too can walk a life that is full of both grace and truth. It's why it's been said we cannot argue anybody into the kingdom of God, but we can love them into the kingdom of God. Not just with words that tickle with ears, but as truth expressed in grace. We're going to be in 1 John 1 today. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, um, turn there with me. It is towards the end of uh, the New Testament. It's towards the end. Um, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 3 Johns. That's where we're at, towards the end. Jude and Revelation. If you want me to finish the song. Okay. Please stand with me as we read 1 John 1, 5. Through 10. Hear the words of the Lord spoken to you this morning. It'll be on the screen as well if you don't have your Bible with you. This is the message we have heard from Him 
and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Bow your heads with me. Father God, as we come to the end of this series of being reminded of who we are as your bride, may we first and foremost be reminded that we are to reflect the groom. And because of the unity that we have with you even now, we have the power to display that grace, to display that love. Lord, convict us of areas that are still in darkness, that are still hidden, that we need to confess. And may we boldly proclaim who you are in the midst of the light. In your son's name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm greatly indebted to the work of Ray Ortland and Sam Alberry. For this sermon, I've been trying to find the right words on this topic really all summer, and then they pieced it together in a podcast that came out about a month, well, about a month ago, several weeks ago. And so between them and Francis Schaefer, if you hear anything that's like, wow, that's really insightful, um, give them the credit. Do not give me the credit. I lean on the wisdom of much wiser brothers this morning. I asked a question to you at the beginning of the sermon, and I'll ask it again here because it's such a focal point of the topic today. Christian, if you were caught in open sin, would your heart's desire to be to run to the church or would you hide from it? Unfortunately, there are many congregations in America, and I'm sure all over the world, where to be around the saints is more of an exercise in fear than an exercise in joy. To be around the saints is more of an exercise in fear than it is joy. Because in the back of our minds at every service, in the back of our minds at every prayer meeting, in the back of our minds every time the pastor visits you in the home, you have a question that stifles your tongue, that chains your heart, and makes you second-guess your faith. And that question is, of course, what if they found out? What if they found out? What if the people found out my darkest sins... What if the pastor knew the awful things I said this week? What if the church knew I was doubting the Christian faith? What if they found out? And I'm not going to do this right now, but hypothetically, if I asked you to turn to a person next to you, one person next to you, preferably someone that you don't know, someone who's not in your family, but one person who sat next to you, and I asked you to tell them the worst thing you've ever done, A, 
Would you be able to do it? And B, what would you expect the reaction to be? If you're like me, right? You might hear mine and be like, okay, yeah, you need to resign from ministry like yesterday, right? And if you're you, you might begin to even question your salvation. This is the fear of what others might think is present. Church, we are not called to just believe grace, love, forgiveness, mercy, all the Christian buzzwords and T-shirt phrases. We're not just called to believe those things, but we are called to extend those things. My hope is that after you told your neighbor the worst thing that you've ever done, And they told you the worst thing that they ever did. My hope is that you'd be able to look one another in the eye and express deep affection for one another. Because we have acknowledged that we're both broken. And more importantly, we know our worth is not based on the worst thing that we have ever done, but is based on the best thing that Christ has ever done. In the verses read today, we find Jesus is the light of the world. And that means that we can bring our sins where? To the light. And Jesus covers them. We can preach that and we can practice that. But you see, there is a problem to acknowledge and we must grow past. There's a problem to acknowledge and grow past. Churches can be completely orthodox in faith. What I mean by that is they're like bullet points on the articles of faith can be completely in line with the Bible. It can be completely orthodox. They can be committed to the gospel of grace while at the same time have a very graceless reality. Cornerstone. We cannot be that and we cannot become that. Ray Ortland says this, a church can unsay by its culture What it says by its doctrine and not even realize it. A church can unsay by its culture what it says by its doctrine and not even realize it. In college, I started attending a men's Bible study um, because I had wise men around me that said, look, you're not a kid anymore. You should be in the men's Bible study. So I started to attend the men's Bible study. I actually think that high schoolers should probably attend men's Bible studies because, well, if they're going to learn how to be men, they should be around men. Okay. So I started attending. Well, at the same time, I am also volunteering on Wednesday night in the middle school youth ministry. Okay? So men's study, Thursday morning, YMCA, halfway decent coffee. Wednesday night, 6th grade, 7th grade, 8th graders. I was in charge of 6th grade boys. Lots of pizza, and you feel miserable as you leave because of what's happening in your gut. Okay? So those things are both happening simultaneously within a 12-hour period for me. And I loved my sixth grade guys. And we would have times together in prayer where there would be weeping because of what was happening at home between them and their parents. They would say, AJ, it sucks. We go home, all we do is yell. All we do is fight. 
There is nothing we get along on. There is nothing that is happening that is positive within the relationship. I barely talk to my mom. I barely talk to my dad. And when we do, it's a screaming match. I don't want that to be my home. I want there to be unity. And we'd sit there together and we'd pray in tears. And then I'd show up Thursday morning with the men's group. And guess who was there? Many of their dads. And we were going through Ken Sandy's Peacemaker book. So this is a book on conflict, a large portion of it on conflict in the home. And when it got to the point in the Bible study where we would ask to pray for one another, we would get to those men. Instead of being able to say, yeah, things at home are bad, they just say, I don't have anything to pray for. I'm fine. Which all that community, what that communicated to me as a young man and as a Christian is that we can talk about grace, we can talk about conflict, we can even believe those things. But there are certain things that when you come to this Bible study that are off the table, that we can't talk about, that I can't be honest about, because I fear how I would look to the rest of you. A church can unsay by its culture what it says by its doctrine and not even realize it. You see, the gospel says something and the gospel does something. The gospel says the truths of the Christian life, that Christ was crucified, that Christ was raised and is returning. And we should believe those things. But what the gospel does, though, is this. The gospel should create beauty in human relationships. Think about it. The vertical glories of the gospel that come down upon us in the church should spread out horizontally in the way that we interact with our communities and our families. And when the church is only sensitive to one aspect of that, if they're only sensitive to what they're saying and not equally alert and equally as sensitive to what they're practicing, then the tone, the intangibles of the church actually counteract what it's intended to do. The beauty of grace-filled human relationships cannot be an afterthought to good doctrine. Why? Because Jesus was full of grace and truth. Church, it's not enough to believe all the right things. The demons actually believe all the right things. And they know our Bible better than you and me do. Because they've been all around studying it longer than both you and me do. But here's the difference between a demon and a Christian. In theory, one practices the words that they know are true. A church that believes all the right things but fails to live them out will be hell for anyone who walks in those doors to try to find hope and grace. We must be a safe place for grace, we must be a hospital for sinners. To use an earlier analogy that I used this summer, 
We must be a functioning lighthouse that actually does the job of a lighthouse, not just a country club located in a lighthouse. We must be a place where light dwells and reaches out into the darkness. And when we do that, we begin walking in the light of grace. We begin walking in the light of grace. Hear the words of 1 John 1 again. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We must move towards the light of what? Of being vulnerable. Maybe not with everyone in this room, but with someone in this room. It astounds me the number of Christians that believe that they can hide their sins from God. No, you cannot. But he does promise to cover them. And the church should receive that covering in unity. And extend the grace to one another that's been given to us. Verse 7 says this, that if we walk in the light... Now, we know walking in the light is not sinlessness that he's talking about here. The context is clear. What the light is, is this. It's honesty. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, Jesus is not hard to find. He's right out there in the light in the place of honesty, waiting for us with open arms. Jesus is the prodigal father. Jesus is the shepherd who goes and seeks the one in the midst of the 99 being found. Jesus is the king who gets off his throne and moves towards broken sinners. But if you're like me, when I am in sin, I tend to hide in the shadows of concealment. It's our sinful nature that traps us there. What we perceive as self-protection is just really denial. It's faking it with a smile and so forth. But the Lord Jesus is out there. He's there in the light of honesty waiting for us. And this is the beauty. This is so beautiful. When we walk in the light as Jesus is in the light, two things happen. First, we have true fellowship with one another. That's what First John says. We have true fellowship with one another. Think about it. If we're not being honest with one another, there ain't true fellowship. It's that Bible study that I was going to. I'm fine. We're good. We have true fellowship with one another and to the blood of Jesus, his son who cleanses us from all sin. This is baseline Christianity. This is the base stuff. This is not Christianity 5032, right? This is just baseline Christianity as opposed to what? Heresy. So a Bible preaching church must not where no a Bible preaching church where no one can risk honesty is in danger of heresy. No matter how pure its theological position must be, because there are two orthodoxies, an orthodoxy of doctrine and an orthodoxy of community. That's clear from the text. Dream with me. Dream with me. What if Cornerstone Church was known for these two things? What if it was known for these two things? What if Cornerstone was known for the preaching of the truth and the living out of the truth? What if it was a place where no one ever felt like they needed to fake it when they walked in the doors? No one felt they needed to actually say, I'm fine. 
which the great theologian Will Smith in his uh, blockbuster movie Hitch defines what I think is perfect, right? How does theologian Will Smith in his blockbuster movie Hitch define what fine is, freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional, right? That's what fine is, right? When, when you say that to me, I'm fine. That's what I'm thinking about. You should know that. Stop using that. What if the grace of God that covers our sin and allows us to grow with him as we struggle, not just vertically, it is expressed horizontally as we interact with one another? What if we finally let our guards down? What if we all understood that the ground rules actually call for vulnerability and gentle transparency? The most freeing times in my life. And I look back on them with such fondness are the times where I've had a group of guys around me where I can be just real with just honest, right? Some, some seasons of life, it's been one or two guys. Other seasons, it's been over a dozen. And we get together and we laugh and we joke and we talk about, you know, the most absurd things that guys can talk about. And then one guy gets real and you know exactly what I mean, because you've all been on those moments. And when someone gets real, the tenor of the whole place goes. Because that means I can be real, too. I got someone struggling with the same issues that I got. Now I'm free to discuss mine. I know what they're going through because I'm going through the same thing. And the times in my life where I have been shackled by sin. I have been in churches where I have had not had the opportunity for honesty. And in the worst cases, it was displayed that certain topics are just off the table. Can't discuss those. Can't discuss porn. Can't discuss sexuality. Can't discuss doubt. You fill in the blank. That's when people are trapped by their sin. We need honesty. We need to walk in the light and we need to be a place that opens the light and provides a place of welcoming to it. Dream with me. Can we be a place where we admit what isn't working in our lives? Can we be a place where what is hard for us to believe in the Bible, we actually deal with? Where we can acknowledge patterns of sin that no one else knows about. If that was the base culture of the church, then that becomes the church that Paul talks about in Galatians 5.1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. If you look at the rest of Galatians, it is about moving in the light and honesty. That's the freedom that he opens us up to. And then the church becomes a group of people that we can run to in the midst of trials, of sins of our own making and others. And not a place where we hide. And then the second thing happens. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. That's when we don't start. That's when we start feeling forgiven. 
hypothetical forgiveness doesn't actually really help actual sinners. It doesn't. What, what does? Felt forgiveness that helps serious sinners like you and me. If it's when you have shared the worst thing you've ever done with the person across from you, and what does he do? They still treat you in love. You mean they're still going to talk to me? People are still going to acknowledge me? And in fact, they've just shared the worst thing they've done, and they're free to do it. And wait a minute, I actually still like them. And we embody in that moment the forgiveness of Christ. We embody in that moment the forgiveness of Christ. That's the felt forgiveness. Ray Ortland rightly says this. What exploded across the Mediterranean world in the first century was not brilliant ideas only. What exploded and captivated the Roman Empire was a new kind of community, a new experience of community. And what is he talking about here? When we are living rightly in community as the visible church, when we are a a culture of grace within our home base, what that does is a culture of grace compels the world. It compels the world. What a culture of grace within the church actually does is it honors the Lord and it benefits the saints, but it is not limited to those two tasks. It goes a step further. It compels the world with Jesus. Francis Schaeffer actually calls it the final apologetic, our demonstration of loving community. It's a show and tell of who we really are to the watching world. Let's be real. What is promoted on what the church is in the news more than often? Our brokenness, our bitterness, and our anger and our resentment. What if what the world saw of the church was a culture of grace? That would be what draws people there. We are living, you and me, in a time of history where anxiety, anger, tribalization, polarization, you name the buzzword, but a place where cancel culture on both sides of the political aisle reigns on the throne. And this is where the church can speak to it. While a past sin in America might grant you a scarlet letter that removes you from whatever institution you must sit in, what we must do is whatever scarlet letter you carry into church on the Sunday morning is put on the cross with Jesus, and that is where it's crucified. That's where we can begin to speak to a community that continues to cancel each other, that continues to label someone by the worst thing they've ever done instead of seeing Christ and his gift as the best thing that's ever been given to us. You want to see church growth in our community in Hicksville? Culture of grace. You want to see churches explode with revival in Ohio? Cultures of grace. You want to see revival in America as a whole? Then the church in America must begin to practice what it preaches. And we in our little corner of the world can begin to model that, not just in this community, but in every sphere of influence you touch throughout the week in your workplace. If you're a teacher in your school, 
And you got students that know that they can come up to you with any issue. It's a culture of grace. If you're working the factory line and everyone knows there, you know, he goes to church and they either view him two ways. One, I cannot. He's a priest, right? I have to treat him very differently because he goes to church. Or two, I can actually, he's approachable. And I know that I can go to him with my issues. And what am I going to receive? Grace that I wouldn't receive from maybe at home. Young people. It tears me apart. There's not much grace anymore with teenagers. You do one thing wrong, you're out. Cancel culture, ghosting. If Christian young people brought about a culture of grace in their spheres of influence, it would ignite our schools. Sam Albury says this, This kind of relational beauty, possibly more than at any other time in my lifetime, will be so magnetic, so needed, so unusual, and so attractive to people who might not like what we believe. They might not like what we believe, but find that kind of relational beauty very hard to resist. We can live out actually what Jesus calls us to in John 13, 35. You've all heard it. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. How? Well, because we've memorized certain portions of scripture. Well, because we're joined of this denomination, we dress this specific way. I have this guy as my favorite podcast. I wear Christian t-shirts. No, it's actually none of that. What is it? By how we love one another. Can you imagine? Dream with me here. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a church that is known not only for the preaching of the gospel, but the living of the gospel? Can you imagine a church that when people walk in the door, the authenticity that is displayed permeates down so that it affects every conversation that takes place in this space before service and after? Can you imagine a church where sin is taken seriously and grace is extended generously? Can you imagine a children's program where they learn the truths of Scripture, but they're not only talking about the truths of Scripture, they're talking about how much they were loved by their teachers throughout that whole entire time. Can you imagine a youth program that's so countercultural that we are not known for what we do not support, but we are known by wrapping our arms around the outcast, around the broken, around the hurting? Can you imagine Bible studies, where not only do we study the Bible, but we openly bring our worries and our doubts to the Bible, and no one bats an eye. Can you imagine men locking arms in unity, looking at one another, knowing, look, life is hard. Being a father is hard. Being a husband is hard. Being a single guy is hard. Being a worker is hard. Dying to self is hard. But I know because I got you, and we got the Spirit working us and uniting us together that we're not leaving each other and because of it we display Christ to one another and to everyone who's watching can you imagine women ministries women you're already most of the time so vulnerable with one another can you imagine where that vulnerability is not met with suspicion or gossip or doubt but becomes the fertile ground in which you can grow 
Can you imagine a place where our wayward children and our hesitant friends can actually deal with the doubts they have about God and Christianity freely, with no judgment, but are met instead by hope and love when they come in our doors? Can you imagine mission teams that are more concerned about the people they are serving than the projects they're accomplishing? Can you imagine worship that risks vulnerability as we lift our voices to the Lord and is met by the Spirit of God? who does not define us by how good we actually sound, but by the way our God sings over us. Can you imagine a local church that is a safe haven for people to run to in the midst of sin and not a place to hide from it when they fail? Can you imagine? Can you imagine a Savior who has already done all those things for us? And who in his wisdom and providence granted us the Holy Spirit to do those things for one another. What is the church? What is the church? It's a culture of grace. Rooted in truth. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. Bought by a Savior. To the glory of God forever. Oh, Cornerstone. Oh, church, what if our church was more than just the imagination of Scripture, but it was a reality here? May that be our prayer.